Hello and welcome to this, the 29th edition of Shift, with me, Ewan Semple. And me, Megan Murray. And this time, uh, we've got a special guest, um, which you can probably tell by the fact that we'll sound slightly different as we have to record this in a, in a different way from usual. But today we're joined by Dr. Emma Bond. And Emma is uh, a director at ICED Institute for Social, Educational and Enterprise Development. Hi, Emma. Hi, Ewan. Hi, Megan. And um, we met uh, in Ipswich uh, a few months ago, I guess it is now, Emma. And um, I was really struck with the conversation we had around your uh, research, a lot of which has been into children and risk and managing that, that risk online. Um, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about that research and what it involves and some, some of the findings? Yeah, sure. I mean, I started research in this area um, oh gosh, probably about eight years ago. And I was very interested in how children and young people use mobile technologies especially. Uh, and at the time, there was an awful lot of hype in the media around radioactivity and brain development to do with mobile phones. And people seemed to be doing some research on that, but nobody actually was sort of talking to children and young people about what they thought about it or how they perceived risk to do with mobile phones. So I sort of started out just talking to children and young people about how they used mobile technologies in their everyday lives. And what was really interesting was whilst the media and a lot of uh, adult perceptions really focused on the risks as uh if you like, the adult world saw them, so everybody was terrified about grooming uh, and cyberbullying. Um, actually, for, for young people, the risks to them were actually quite different, but they also used mobile technologies to manage risk in their everyday lives. Mm. So they actually managed their relationships or they managed the risk of being, um, say, attacked in a public place by having a mobile phone. So that was, you know, for me, that was really fascinating. Interesting. And, and in what sort of ways? I mean, how do they do that? What? Approach. Well, for example, if you were um, alone in a public space, having your phone and talking to somebody was a way of managing that risk. And sometimes, actually, they wouldn't actually be talking to somebody at the other side. They'd be pretending to. <laughs> or if you were on your own, you know, you could relieve boredom by using your mobile phone because, you know, if you, if you were scared that somebody was going to approach you, if, you were, if they thought you were talking to somebody on your phone, then therefore they wouldn't. So they actually manage risk in public space by using their mobile phone. Interesting. In fact, it's, that's funny, that's just brought back to, to mind a, a, a night that we spent as a family in a youth hostel, and there was this incredible racket started up at one in the morning, and, and just really quite a, an intimidating sound, um, which my wife and I decided to do something about. So we both sort of leapt out of this room in our pyjamas, walking towards what we thought were intruders, with me holding my phone as a camera uh, to record everything. Um, to find these slightly bemused people from, I think they were from Indonesia, who were just on holiday and just slightly noisier than average. They <laughs> <laughs> look very confused. I've got them all on record looking very confused by it all. Um, but that's a cracking story. And, and so the kids, I mean, I, I perhaps naively have always assumed that the kids are invariably going faster than the parents and can tend to possibly play down the risk. But again, from our conversation, there are clearly circumstances that are of concern, aren't there? Well, yes, absolutely. And I think what is so fascinating, if you like, at the moment, that we actually have a period in society now where we have a sort of unprecedented flip, if you like, that adults 
previously were always seen as the expert. You know, we had the most knowledge, we had the most experience. We knew what childhood was like because, let's face it, we'd been children ourselves. And for the first time now, you have got children growing up in a society which is so radically different to how not only people grew up a generation ago, but even how people grew up five years ago. Because if you just look at the technological advances with smartphones, for example, that actually the adults are no longer the experts. And it is actually young people who are using these technologies, they're using social media as part and parcel of their everyday lives in a way that adults don't, and certainly in a way that we, we certainly didn't grow up like this. And it was Mark Prensky um, in America um, coined the phrase, which is a little bit problematic, but he coined the phrase, you know, there's a real difference between digital natives, which are children growing up now, and digital immigrants, which is us as adults who've come into the digital world um, later in life. Yes, and as a digital old codger, I always slightly resist that. But um, in terms of... And I'm, I'm following this line of questioning because I guess it's something that people will be interested in but I'm going to sound like a conventional journalist trying to dig up the bad side of things but, <laughs> um, and, and with two teenage daughters myself I mean part of what we've been concerned with from the word go was to learn enough that they knew we understood enough to have a sensible conversation with us mm-hmm. uh, about risk and, I, and, I, and my sense is that some of the kids who do end up in trouble it's partly because their parents haven't been able to get to that position yeah partly but i think it's important that we don't you know go down the blame the parents road here it is really really challenging i think for parents to actually keep up with what young people are are doing online and, and with their mobile technologies you know so often i hear all these conversations around oh well they're completely obsessed with minecraft or are them this all the time on that all the time and you sort of say well have you played it well, no, no. Why would I? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, if you want to understand what your children are doing, sit down. You know, it could actually be, you know, quite entertaining perhaps to do that. But I think there is a real problem that there is a lack of, lack of understanding quite often, certainly around things like the use of Facebook, that many parents, even though Facebook states quite clearly you need to be 13 to have a Facebook account, which is mm-hmm. to do with the copper law in America, Um, Many parents set up or help their children set up Facebook accounts with a false date of birth without actually really seriously considering the consequences of those actions. Or lots of parents are actually posting images of really young children or even unborn babies up onto Facebook on public profiles. You know, most most children nowadays have got a digital footprint before they're two. A lot of them have got a digital footprint before they're even born. Yeah, and that, that was something I was very aware of, that it was their online histories and it was up to them when they put pictures and, and didn't. And, and this wasn't out of any sense of paranoia uh, about what might happen to the pictures. It was almost just self-respect for them as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we you know, we talk about consent and the use of image uh, and, and one's personal identity, you know, many children actually have not given their consent for their images to be up there. And once they're there, you can never get them back. But a lot of people, you know, a lot of parents don't actually think along those lines. And that's really, really difficult. And, you know, there are some really serious risks around 
privacy settings, you know, certainly to do with um, perhaps young parents who are particularly vulnerable who are posting images up of young children or babies online. And, you know, we, we did some uh, research for the Mary Collins Foundation in, in the autumn, and we got so many stories about parents who had posted images of their children up there deliberately in order to attract a relationship. Gosh. Wow. <laughs> wow. Do you, do, is this the same in the States, do you think, Megan? Is it a similar situation? Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's become such a, a natural extension of who we are and the way that we communicate to, to broadcast those things. And to be frank, I think that there are still a lot of people in the world that, that look at children or have a layer of a perception of children as being property. So the, the notion of... Mm-hmm. Um, the notion of extending that, that even if it's not a conscious frontal, I don't mean to, to imply that, you know, a negative to that, but it's, it's just that conscious, uh, what's in the foremost of their uh, uh, position of their conscious is that they want to share with everybody what's going on. Um, so, of course, these are well-intended. You know, the road to hell can be paved with good intentions, and that's one of those places. But I, I feel that that's a way, it's, it's a fairly common thing. I've I've seen... Loads and loads of um, of friends uh, who become pregnant and want to share their experiences with the, their extended family um, or folks scattered around the world. So they post up those sonogram pictures, post up <laughs> every little bit of information that goes on. And I, and I think you're absolutely correct. I think there's um, an enormous amount of risk that, that we're taking on or even just... Um, um, uh, we're just taking liberties that aren't necessarily fair. I mean, it's, it's a, it's almost a, um, it's, it's a respect issue mm-hmm. in that, uh, is this an individual person? Is this somebody who can make a choice for themselves and, and what kind of risk are we putting ourselves in? Um, I'm curious, Emma, like when, uh, what kind of risks are, are these folks experiencing beyond the, you know, the usual, I mean, for the longest time here, there was this big argument when uh, uh, Facebook and, and uh, Foursquare specifically, when that started coming out, um, there was uh, uh, a bit of, of fear about letting people know where you were, um, exactly where you were. And uh, because you were using a piece of technology, that you had a piece of technology in your hand and that, uh, you know, you might be out and about or traveling or away from home, so your home was unprotected, things like that. Um, what, what kind of perceptions have, have folks had uh, about specifically giving away things like location beyond even loading up um, your digital identity and, and uh, your pictures and your opinions and such. Um, but what about your, your present time, like real time, some of the, the location elements? Has that been anything, uh, have, have there been any work in that direction? Has there been any results in that direction? Any new findings? Yeah, I mean, the sort of, um, sort of GPS and being able to locate your, your position is one that's causing an awful lot of concern um, over here, especially with regard to to children. Uh, also, in, you know, in terms of them being like groomed, if you like, and people being able to, to narrow down exactly where they are. I mean, I know that um, CEOP, who are the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Centre in this country, uh, produced a film not so long ago trying to raise awareness to young people about how easy it is for somebody to actually put like little pieces of a jigsaw together and actually find really accurately what school you go to, where you live, what your house looks like. 
your day-to-day activities, like, you know, in their film, it was like roller skating in the park after school. Mm-hmm. But just how easy it is for somebody, a perpetrator that wants to harm a child, to put together little bits from a social networking profile, little bits of post about, you know, where I hang out, where I want to spend time with my friends, what my interests are. It's so easy for somebody actually to really pinpoint a child from the virtual environment straight down to the physical geographic environment and really track them down. And do you have any sense, Emma, of how often that happens? Because, I mean, I've heard friends who've done Mm -hmm. research and been involved in this thing actually in terms of you know, percentage of the population, clearly it's dreadful when it happens, but it's still rather very small percentages that this affects. But I suppose it partly depends on how you define the activity, does it? Or how, how do, what is your sense of the measure of this, how, how bad it is or how risky it is? Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when, you look at, when you look at it, I mean, there's the prevalence, if you like, of online risks. One of the most common ones, for example, is, is cyberbullying. The less prevalent ones, perhaps, are the very... Um, severe consequence ones of a paedophile tracking down a child. But I think what's really important to remember here is just by, if we're going to try and keep children safe, we have to get the message out about not giving away your location, wearing your school uniform in photographs, etc. Because in terms of risk, whilst you can statistically measure risk and say, well, you're at greater risk of this or you're at less risk of that, if you are the one child... Yeah. That is targeted by a paedophile. That is very, very serious risk. And I think it's really important that we have to remember that risk is something that is a, subjectively experienced in terms of how we behave, is actually uh, mediated by how we perceive the risk. So if we see something as risky, we're less likely to behave in a certain way, rather than something that is objectively measured statistically, can actually lull us into a bit of a false sense of security. Oh, well, you know, the rates for child abduction from paedophiles, they're quite low, so I won't worry. <laughs> well, but that, that sort of goes both ways, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you, you use the word mediated, and, of course, much of our sense of this comes through the media, uh, who love to focus on negative stories. And, and you know, I, as a dad bringing up two young girls, I was struggling sometimes to balance the sense of responsibility without wanting to become paranoid. Yeah. And, and artificially constrain their lives in a way that, you know, as kids, we just went out and played everywhere without thinking about it. Um, and I think that that sort of societal novelty of this is possibly part of it, isn't it? It is, it is sort of an unknown. Um, mm-hmm. And if I, and the naivety, I was thinking when we were talking about managing kids' use of the, the technologies. And in fact, the reason I was in Ipswich when we met was to deliver a talk at a private school there. And it was quite funny because all these parents who were clearly addicted to their Blackberries were having a go at the kids for spending too much time on the devices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just that I think a lot of people haven't really, almost, it's not like they haven't mapped the norms of behaviour onto these new tools, isn't it? No, that's very true. And I think exactly what you said, you know, a generation ago, we grew up as children using physical space. I played out in the fields, I climbed trees, I got very dirty, I came home when it was dark, sometimes I didn't, I got into a lot of trouble. But my play space, if you like, was very, very much the physical environment where where I was. Mm -hmm. Now, with the media, you know, perceptions of risk have very, very much changed the social construction of childhood. And we have taken children away from the physical space. If you let your children play out now unaccompanied, you actually seem to be a really bad parent. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. But what we have done then, with the proliferation of virtual play spaces, that a lot of the time children are actually roaming around on virtual play spaces, whether it is Minecraft, whether it's Facebook, mm-hmm. whether it's actually just browsing online, completely, you know, unbounded. You know, I did have boundaries. Okay, it was, yeah. you know, dark and I had to go home. But many parents, there are no boundaries in place. And what's really happened with technology is it used to be, you know, even just not too long ago, there was a computer, a family computer in the corner of the living room. Yeah. Yeah. And you could, I suppose, see what your children were doing. And, you know, parents' advice was, well, keep it in a public place and you can see what your children are doing. Then we had laptops and, you know, very, very privileged children probably had their own laptop, but they were very few. Now we have mobile phones with internet access. We've got tablets that are very, very cheap. You know, if you look at access, children now access the internet from their pockets. So how you're going to talk to children about keeping safe is really different. And how we then talk to parents is not actually about keeping a PC in a public place. You've got to be able to talk to children because they can access the internet 24-7, seven days a week mm-hmm. from their bedroom. It is no longer a public access point. It's a very private access point. And that's where a lot of the, the, the landscape of risk has really changed in the last few years because of the plethora of mobile technologies now available to children. But it, it's interesting because it's sort of a mantra on these podcasts that it's not about the technology. And it, it comes to mind again that, you know, in the sense that I did a workshop once in Amsterdam where this lady was getting really quite worked up about the evil that was the internet, if you like, and uh, yeah. the fact that her daughter was spending way too much time on Facebook and not getting enough sleep and um, suffering That's poor parenting. Well, that's, that yeah. was exactly my response. I said, maybe your daughter just wants you to be her mum and, and yeah. tell her what to do and why. And, and so, uh, again, I think it's partly just a, it's a bit of a cop-out. That's not, that's not fair. But, but it, it's about talking about the consequences of the tools rather than just take, you know, you know, you hear people making slightly artificial measures of taking the phones off them and, you know, arbitrary periods of the day when they're not allowed to do things. It just seems well, it's fascinating. Worse, doesn't it? It, it what fascinates me about it is that it, just like anything else, it's this opportunity to explore and learn together. Mm. And what we, you know, the, the language that we tend to use is often, let's, we're going to stay safe. Well, the reality is you're not. You're a human being. You're a blob of water flying around on a rock. <laughs> you know, you could get hit by a bus tomorrow. You're not going to be safe necessarily. You can set yourself up for the most success possible. You can explore what that looks like um, with your trusted network of folks. And your trusted network of folks may be parent to child. Um, so that you can be conscious of the choices that you're making and have some awareness about what you'll do if something occurs, right? Um, to me, that's, that's the, it's just like you were saying in the beginning, and it's really more about education than anything else. There's this, um, not quite a child, but I love the example of uh, kind of precisely what we're talking about here, and that uh, uh, here in the States uh, a few weeks ago, um, a couple of uh, gay men were bashed in the street by uh, kind of what was described as a marauding group of, of, uh, uh, of straight kids, right? Oh, I saw that, <laughs> as they, yes. yes. As they put it, right? And um, at the, at the, on the, after the uh, incident happened, 
um, only three of the people who participated in this crowd of like eight or ten people um, were actually um, um, charged with anything, and only one of which became internet famous for a few minutes because uh, they went back to her tweet stream and found all kinds of homophobic and racist things, and she had actually uh, posted pictures of x-rays and stuff. She's a, she works in healthcare and was breaking all kinds of rules there. Doing all that. They were basically trying to... Uh, you know, find as much as they could on her to, to, to make her look like a terrible person, which wasn't really hard, apparently. Um, but, uh, you know, here's this kid, and she's the police chief's daughter. That's another part of the, the equation, right? So here we have this, this poor police chief who's now, you know, also being run through the mill as well, which, you know, poor whatever, apparently he didn't do a very good job of parenting. But um, so there's, there's all of this is now... 100% transparent. We can now make assessments of how what, what a good parent this yeah. fellow is. We can now make assessments about how savvy his child is and how well she's done in the world. You know, it's um, that's kind of to me the 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 darkest you know side of of what we're talking about. In that um, there are tons of risks that these people who are are clearly coming from a, a, a risk-aware side of the world, being law enforcement and healthcare and such, um, but that they're taking on due to some degree of ignorance, whether it's their, their social ignorance, their personal ignorance, their technological ignorance, whatever. Yeah. Um, but that's, that type of example it just, to me, kind of underscores the, the, that we need to be better at educating each other about this. And we, beyond educating and saying that there is an answer to it, exploring it. Is well, one and also taking collective responsibility for it. I mean, in the sense that, yes, you know, in my book, about, I talk about um, we all have a, a, control, a volume control on mob rule and, mm -hmm. and we can decide what we react to, disapprove of, um, try to push back against. And mm -hmm. of course, like in real life, Online, a lot of people just stand back and watch bad behaviour without saying anything about it. Yeah. Um, and, and bullying is, a, is an example of that. And that's where I think it was really interesting, Emma, when you were talking about the kids, not just using the phones, I guess, to ward off uh, anything untoward, but also just to talk to each other about what's going on and work it out. And that's something I've found very positive about my kids and their, their wisdom, if you like, that they learn from each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what has been so good to see very recently is social media being used in a way that is really supportive and really empowering for young people to A, share their experiences, also to make sense of things, but also to get help and advice. You know, I was, um, um, was uh, very honoured to be asked to go and speak to the EU um, uh um, InSafe network in Lithuania a few weeks ago and there was a speaker there from Denmark and he was talking about the, um, an online platform that they have there for young people to go on to share their problems, to talk about self-harm, to talk about all these things that actually adults feel really uncomfortable to talk to them about and it's like a peer-to-peer -peer support network and it's had the most amazing results and we've got similar uh, examples here with uh, youthnet etc and i think that you know so often we look at the online world the internet you know whatever you want to call it as oh it's it's fraught with risk we need to protect our children from it 
But in terms of you want your children to grow up really understanding and being part of the knowledge economy, but now also we're seeing actually being able to use these spaces to really help and support and empower each other through what is actually quite a minefield of growing up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, the, the growing up process doesn't stop when you come out of childhood either. I was thinking about this the other day where I had shared a story on Facebook, uh, a journalist in the Telegraph of all newspapers, wondering why the middle class weren't rioting uh, in the face of all the sort of financial scandals one after the other. And a friend of mine suggested that it was because they were wary of being seen to dissent when they're being monitored online mm-hmm. which I thought was a fascinating reaction and started sort of contemplating the possibility that that was true and of course that that really worries me when we stop saying what we think because of fear of disapproval um, that's how tyrants begin to take power and, and things go horribly wrong so I, I think it's so important that, that the kids learn to work stuff out and find their voices and, and share responsibility. And if they can teach their parents, all the, all the better, really. Yeah, definitely. And also, you know, they they are growing up in such a fantastic and exciting time where you can find out information about from all over the world about things that you're genuinely really interested in. You can connect with people who share the same interests. You know, if, if you look at it from a, a sort of children's rights point of view, you know, there is, there is quite an uneasy relationship between that right to participate, to be part of society and to be a valued citizen, and yet, and also the right to be protected. And I think sometimes the balance falls down on the protection stuff, almost to the detriment of really allowing them to go out there and explore the world and be part of it, yeah. and to participate in, you know, what is a really, really exciting time. The, the, the virtual opportunity to get your knees dirty, basically, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, what, what about, um, I mean, I guess within Britain, within the sort of multicultural society that we have, and I don't know how much your work extends into adults, but I guess some of this is to do with norms about what's acceptable. And, and of course, another fascinating aspect of the internet is, is blurring or softening some of those differences. Do you see that with the kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I think I think what what we have seen recently is a real blurring of the boundaries of you know you spoke about about norms certainly around sexuality about sexual content about pornography um and you know what we're seeing recently with revenge pornography um can you say, that can you explain that well you know there's a lot of concern at the moment about revenge pornography but I, what I'm is, have to confess complete ignorance of what revenge which may be a good thing. Um, I've no idea what revenge pornography is. Um, okay, well, in the British media recently, there's been quite a lot of uh, headlines around revenge pornography when uh, somebody, uh, quite often in the context of a intimate relationship, oh, okay. has That's been enough. filmed yeah. uh, having uh, sex, that when the relationship breaks down, that film is being put out on social media, it's been loaded gotcha. up onto websites, it's been really, really publicised. And you have, and yet, the law and legality around that is very, very difficult. Yet, you know, lives are being destroyed, if you like, through mm-hmm. the blurring, blurring of the boundaries between what is public and what is private. 
and sort of in mm. terms of norms and, and values, I think we're seeing real shifting boundaries now around what is pornographic, what is legal, what is not legal, what is indecent, and around this sort of very easy sharing around sexual content, which is having a real impact as well on children's experiences. Yeah. Because they can so... I mean, if you, go, if you Google sex, you get pornography very easily. Yep. And when you think how curious children are, I mean, you know... Well, we, I, we, had we, to deal, talking, we, we had to deal with it the day when my daughter was doing biology at school and did a search for animal sex. Yeah. So you can, you can imagine <laughs> the... <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because, again, it's a bit like... Bro- well... I was about to wade into the topic there, but I, I, I have a sense that it's a bit like prohibition. And the more jumpy we get, the more we try to constrain it, the, the more underground it will go and the more the consequences will be unpredictable and negative. But how long does it take and how many people have to be upset before we get to some other sort of societal norm again with this? But I think what's, you know, we're, we're all, okay, we're a bit up in arms about it, but I, you know, we started talking earlier in this conversation about a generation well a generation or ago in my school library if you open the dictionary it would fall open at the the word sex because everybody was curious and looked at it well now we send our children to google from a really really young age to do their geography homework to look up shakespeare if you want information go to google now you don't need a high level of literacy and very young children are curious about sex you go to google type it in you get pornography what we're still not doing, though, is actually talking to children face-to-face and giving them answers about sex because we're still very, you know, prudish and we don't want to talk about it. So they are still going to Google, and what they are getting is information that is not of the Dorian Kingsley variety and the information that they want, we would like them to have. And they're viewing pornography, but then don't know how to talk about it yeah. or how to express themselves because they know they probably shouldn't have seen it. And I really think, you know, if we... It's not actually necessarily about legislation, but I think we need to, we need to be able to talk to children about their online experiences, okay. whether it is to mm-hmm. do with viewing pornography, whether it is to viewing beheadings online. Well, yes, you know, I, I, there I, I, are yeah. all these things that are going on in our children's lives yeah. that we as adults think they shouldn't be seeing, but they are, but we're too uncomfortable to talk about it. Yeah, and it, and, yeah I, mean, I wrote, that's a, the thing. wrote about the beheadings at the time and said, you know, that, that you learn very early on in the internet, in alt, wick, misc, whatever it was, um, you know, to, to look away and, and that you would stumble across stuff. And I think... And again, it's it's to do with the particular child in the particular circumstances, because a lot of them will just look away because they don't want to see it um, and exercise some degree of control themselves. But it's always the ones at risk who just tip over into something that they then find hard to control. I mean, mm. what about the States again, Megan, with, with the pornography thing? Because my sense is it's more, well, I suppose it varies state to state, but that's where the industry is largely, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it is very much. Um, you know, I think it's. It, I think what's interesting to me about it is that it's. What starts to come up for me is that we really must do a better job at uh, um, the part where we're having conversation and education about this, or even if we're expressing as parents our discomfort with it, as part of the conversation. Um, because, I mean, there are things that exist. There's a whole side of the world that is very comfortable and very happy with pornography. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad word to them. Yep. And, and 
that doesn't automatically make them bad people. Um, it's something that, you know, there's got to be some kind of uh, um, normative middle ground that allows uh, people to use the, the media that they want to use for the purposes that want, they want to use it for as, you know, as, as long as it's not harming somebody else. That's the point, right? Well, so, and is it, is it the implied harm or the potential harm that we shut it down for um, or not? So, I mean, as far as pornography goes, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been out there forever and ever. And before the internet, it was, you know, the the magazine that your uncle had that everybody would find and, you know, pass around all, to all their mates and have a good time with, you know. It's it's always, it's been there. It's always been there to some degree. It's just that the floodgates are open at this point. Yeah. Um, if you, and if you're a parent and you're not smart enough to, to turn on, say, filter, um, you're going to find some really interesting things when you... T- you look for particular keywords, you know, but it's, that's the, that's the conversation that needs to happen, you know, and then in addition to that, I mean, I'd be much more concerned in seeing, uh, in having my child be exposed to a beheading than I would to something sexual, um, something sexual, I could at least then have a, a, a catalyst for a conversation with them to say, you know, let's talk about that. Was that normal? Was that healthy? Was that good? Was it bad? You know, and, act- and actually get past our own discomfort by making it normal and okay to talk about, right? Um, but a beheading is much more that the potential for trauma, the potential for long-standing biological, physical trauma uh, to the way that some someone's brain perceives information is much more, um, that's going to have a lot more impact, I think, in the long run, um, because it also makes people much more comfortable with, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's that introduction to being desensitized to violence. Well, which which is another thing we've done know. for a long time with films. I mean, this always exactly. fascinates me that the, the exactly. prudishness about sex compared to the amount of violence we can tell <laughs> well, in both sure. games and films is amazing. Well, and I mean, it's, it's, and this is why I love this conversation, though, is because it's a conversation. It's not, it's not a judgment about what is or what isn't. Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's, it's exploring all these points on the spectrum that we really just do have to explore together. So there's this, in, in my world here in San Francisco, um, uh, as you've, you've heard me talk before, I'm connected to the performing community here. Um, and of late, there's been this kind of, um, binary kind of conversation going on about um, integrity and security and safety on Facebook by representing yourself with your legal name. And that seems to be a, a, a you know, that's the easiest thing in the world and that normative should apply to everybody. Mm-hmm. However, I know performers who've used their performing name as their real name, um, whether it be on their license or not, for upwards of 30 years. So uh, um, they might not be... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, Fred Smith, they might be uh, uh, Mother Chucka, or they might be uh, Sister Roma, or they might be um, uh, Juanita Moore. And to, to take some random examples, Megan. To take some random examples, right? Now, um, the thing about that is that uh, we start, like, we take our normatives, we take our codes, and that when, I think, when I say code, I'm talking about the code that Facebook has written in that it has to operate with, with normative rules, code as in being a law, um, code as in being our, our, our networked perceptions as, as societal human beings about how we look at things. When we take those codes and we narrow them down to such binaries of good and bad and right and wrong and one or the other, um, we start running into these places where we have gaps of humanity yeah. that are totally lost, you know. Well, um, and, and Emma, what's your, your sense of 
because a concern we've expressed here before is that legislation tends to lag behind current yeah. reality and is being Certainly. drawn up by people who don't really fully grasp the consequences mm-hmm. of the legislation. Do you, do you see that sort of thing happening? or I think what's so difficult in terms of legislation when you're dealing with the internet, you know, we talked earlier about blurred boundaries. You've got, you know, geographical boundaries and what is legislation in one country is going to be different to another. Mm-hmm. You've also got real blurred boundaries around this whole thing about what is virtual, what is real, that it is, I am, and I would never, ever, ever profess to be an expert on the, the legislative side of this, but from the people I've been really privileged to work with um, and had dealings with, I know that this is something that causes so much concern, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's certainly the center of so much, you know, policy initiatives and certainly so many conferences and debates and political arguments and angst. Mm-hmm. You know, how far do you drive down control Mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. locking down the internet when you've got freedom of speech and mm-hmm. and everything else. And, you know, underlying that, you've got all the philosophy behind democracy. It's, I'm afraid that's one question I, I would not, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have enough knowledge to even attempt to well, answer that question. But I'm sure we could keep con- having a conversation about it for hours, because it is, that's what's so fascinating, isn't it? We've got these sort of ripping feelings at the moment that are, means of dealing with things aren't keeping up with the challenges we're having to face. But I'll, yeah. I'll, give, you, um, I'll give you one little example and a little ray of light in all of this in that um, that issue that I was talking about with the farmers here in the city, um, they did what, they had the conversation with the kid. They went and they talked to Facebook and they went and they talked to Facebook a number of times and continue to, to raise their issue and continue to raise their argument, and Facebook is now changing the policy. Has, I, got, I got an apology letter from Facebook, which I thought unprecedented. And that <laughs> thing about reaching out, it's really interesting because we can get stuck in little loops online yeah. where things seem like immutable problems. And I'm working with the United Nations at the moment and some of the communications folks there, and one of them just told this great story of, and it's maybe just as well, I can't remember which country it was in, but one of the countries in North Africa where there's considerable tension at the moment, and some of that tension had manifest online and it was sort of all blowing up. And then one day they just decided to ask the, the uh, other side of the conflict, if you like, in to have a coffee. And, and the whole thing just dissipated because they sat in front of each other. They, they kind of resolved the differences. They had a blether and it all got better. Um, and I do think we sort of divorce real life and in inverted commas from online and then make online more of a problem sometimes than it has to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, as Emma's very clearly laid out for us, um, there is real risk. There are real things to be concerned about. There are issues that are uh, that are out there that that can be quite dire and it's important to um to continue conversation educate ourselves uh, make ourselves aware of uh, of what's going on and yes absolutely it can be overwhelming it it often reminds me you and of when you know we we first very first started talking we were talking about how um uh, uh senior level people inside of companies were feeling overwhelmed when they were being asked to participate in a social network mm-hmm. um yeah, there's a lot. That's the world. There is a lot. We have to we have to begin to make choices about what to hold on to and what to let go of. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, unfortunately, when you're talking about risk, when you're talking about the safety of your family, when you're talking about children, um, that's something you don't let go of. 
So we have to make ourselves uh, uh, more aware and really participate in these conversations to understand what's truly at risk and what we want to do about it. Yeah. Well, and and in that spirit, thank you very much indeed, Emma, for uh, helping us dig into some of the, the topics. Yes, indeed. It was so good to have you. Thank you for joining us. Not at all. It was really nice to talk to you. And um, we, we tend to ask where people can readily get hold of our guests. If you go to the UCS website, uh, you'll find my uh, profile up on there. Or you can go to the uh, Palgrave website. Um, how, have how a, you spell a that? book on there, the Palgrave Publisher. Um, I've written a book on mobile technologies, um, uh, childhood and children's everyday experiences. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thanks as ever, Megan. Um, you can get hold of Megan at... At Megan Murray. And I'm at Ewan on Twitter. And as ever, do let us know what you've thought about today's show and any suggestions for future topics. So thanks all very much indeed. Mm-hmm.